All right, church, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn them to Jonah. That is a prophet pretty much right in the middle of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. So get past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and get into pretty much right in the middle there if you need help finding your way there. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 1 this morning. So let's hear the word of the Lord together as you find your way there. The, Lord of the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi. Get up, go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down the Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down, into the, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing, sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we will know who is to blame for this trouble that we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where, do you, are you, or where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men seized by great fear and said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea is getting worse and worse. And he answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm, I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, as you can tell, we are going to launch into a a new series uh, this morning for the next four weeks through the book of Jonah. I'm going to call it the Gospel According to Jonah. Um, just side note, first of all, as Delon said, thank you for your flexibility, your patience in this process. We're kind, of, we're kind of reconnecting with our roots here, Grace, by having to do set up and tear down. And we won't have to tear down today or any of that kind of stuff. But it uh, kind of feels like the old cafeteria days, does it not? Those of you who are with us, we all know what we're talking about there. Um, can't control the sound, echoing, bouncing everywhere, trying to slam people into seats and all that fun stuff. Hey, listen, we hope this will be temporary. Um, and we'll give you a little update on that here at the end of the service. So this morning, again, we're, I'm, I'm really excited about this new series that we're going to be launching into in the book of Jonah. And I'm calling it, as I mentioned, the gospel according to Jonah, because we're going to see the gospel in this book. In the Old Testament, we can see the gospel. We say it all the time, right? We see Jesus everywhere in the Bible. If you read close enough, you see God's covenantal work and how he shows us what he's pointing us to Christ. And we see this very vividly in the book of Jonah. Now, if you were to reduce this book down to one sentence, and it'd be really hard because there's lots of wonderful principles here. 
it would be something like this. God chases down his people who are on the run from him, or on the run from his purposes, more specifically, and he mercifully calls us back to this marvelous grace as he saves undeserving sinners. If you were to like really reduce down the book of Jonah, that would be in the realm of what the main idea that this, this prophet has out for us as we study it over the next few weeks. And so my question to you this morning is, can you recall a time in your life, maybe you're in it right now, I don't know, where you were on the run from God? And if so, what was it like? Was it because um, God wasn't acting like the genie in a bottle that you wanted him to be, right? Just rub his belly and he'll give you whatever you want kind of thing? Um, God doesn't take kindly to that kind of thing. How about um, maybe God said no to you about something in your life that you thought was good for your life, but God said, no, that's not good for you, and you have spurned his, his love and his grace and his honestly confronting your sin, um, and you thought that that was unloving or maybe perhaps unfair. Or maybe you were angry with him because he seemed... Um, what it seemed to, he seemed to align your life with some extraordinarily difficult circumstances, and you just felt like that was just unfair or unloving. These are the questions that many of us have about God in general, but even God's people, because this whole context of this book is about God's people. As, as much as it is about seeing God wonderfully send his grace to Nineveh, this is about God showing his grace to his own people. And we are just as prone as anyone to run from God's marvelous grace. And I hope that's what we'll be able to see, especially in this first chapter this morning. So my question to you is, where are you now? Wherever you are this morning, here's what I am certain of as we kind of launch into this study. I am confident as we study this prophet Jonah's account of God chasing him down, that God knows you just like he knows Jonah, and he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows our fears. He knows our frustrations. He knows our hurts. He knows our confusions. And not only that, when God calls us into the places that are, oh, unfamiliar, uncomfortable, let's just say it, unwanted, he continues to be our God. And he pursues us with wonderful compassion and grace. Yet he will do so by leading us face to face with our own sin. Please never mistake that. God's grace is never disconnected from him showing you who you really are. And he loves you so much. He loves me so much. He will never, never, never not show you your sin. And any believer who thinks grace is something separate from sin or separate from that doesn't get the, the, the amazing nature of the gospel. And uh, friends, I just think we're going to see so much of that in this study. So today, as we look at chapter 1, here's my main idea that I want to just flesh out with us together this morning. That even as God calls us into these uncomfortable and unwanted places, God always, and I mean always, is seeking to work out His grace in our lives to show us what is really good for us, and what is really glorious for him. Okay? Let's say that one more time because I don't want you to miss that. Even as God calls us into uncomfortable and unwanted places from time to time, whatever that may be, God is always, always seeking to work out his grace in our lives to show us our ultimate good, what is really good for us, not what we think is good for us, but what is really good for us, and what is really good glorious for him. Okay? 
So let's get a little bit of handle on this book of Jonah before we launch into some thoughts that I have from chapter one. I just think it's helpful. I want to help my brothers who are going to follow after me over the next few weeks get a grasp so they can know as we all kind of work together to study this book together. Jonah is this account, as we've already noted, of how God works in his people's lives when he sends us sometimes into harsh and unforgiving world that we have to proclaim the gospel in. God knows that. He knows as he sends us into this world to share the gospel, he knows how harsh it actually is. He knows how anti-Christ it actually is. He knows what you are about to face. So the book of Jonah, though, if you think about it this way, is not ultimately about a man being swallowed by a fish. Now, that fish plays an incre- in, a, a very instrumental role in us seeing the gospel in Jonah, and we'll see that here in just a little while. But it's not ultimately about Jonah being swallowed by the fish, whale, whatever it is that we tend to attribute that great fish to be. Nor is it ultimately about God's grace and mercy that he wants to display to Nineveh, as important as that theme is, because it's an important theme in this book. And we'll talk about that. Rather, Jonah is first and foremost about a God making his grace really known to his people. See, we can't proclaim grace the goodness of the gospel, if we don't know how good grace actually is. I mean, how can you convince someone that a dessert tastes really good if you yourself have not enjoyed that dessert, right? Or your favorite dish. If you have not enjoyed it yourself, like what does the psalmist say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. That is what God is showing Jonah. You can't proclaim my grace to Nineveh because you have not tasted and seen how great my grace is. And friends, that's the message for every person sitting in this room right now. That is the wrestling point for all of us here in our lives as we journey towards heaven and, and, and run and, and God continues to pursue us in that direction. Now look, Jonah has so many wonderful principles in it that I hope we'll be able to pluck out of this for the next few weeks. In fact, to be honest with you, I don't even know that we can even get it in in four weeks, but we're going to do our best. I trust that as we've talked about it and wrestled with it, that the Lord's given us all assignments that's going to help us cover some of these areas. But here's the thing that I want to make sure that we understand, that these principles that God, that we pluck out of Jonah, apart from the message of the gospel itself, are not easy to receive. If we look at Jonah honestly and begin to look at Jonah as somewhat of a mirror to ourselves, you're not going to like what you see. You're not going to like the fact that as you see Jonah in Jonah, that this very practical Old Testament prophet, you're not going to like the fact that that you're going to look in the mirror and see that you, like Jonah, are ungrateful, just like I am at times. You're not going to like the fact that you, like Jonah, sometimes in Israel, by the way, Jonah is really just a picture of Israel. I mean, this is is God going to Israel saying, you don't even know my magnitude and my grace. And Jonah's just kind of the personification, if you will, of of everything that God's been doing in Israel since David and Solomon have passed. And he says, you don't even know because you have been treating God, like I said earlier, a genie in a bottle. This is what we do sometimes. This is how we pray sometimes. And, And God wants to expose that in Jonah's life. He wants to bring Jonah into a much richer, much fuller experience of himself. You're not going to like when you look at Jonah and find that maybe, just maybe, you have the same propensity to look at people who are different than you with different colored eyes. Now listen, whether that's ethnically or culturally or socially, it can come in all kinds of forms, partiality and prejudice, 
hit us all. The Bible talks about it, talks about it very honestly. And we need to be aware of that. Regardless of where you stand on all these modern conversations on issues of race and whatnot, this is an area that the Bible does speak to. So we're not going to like these things. But what we are going to like, if we look past Jonah's own response and look at the goodness of the gospel, what we are going to like is that in spite of those things, Christ saves sinners. That he shows a marvelous grace to sinners, even when we fail to be the things that we think that we are, but we are not. This is what we find. What's more is that the book of Jonah really doesn't... Here's the, here's the thing that, I, that is very uncomfortable, the, probably the most uncomfortable aspect of this entire book of Jonah, is that God's not interested in resolving the problem about Jonah. The book abruptly ends, if you read it all the way to the end. Justin will have that text at the end, so y'all pray for him. All right? It's, it abruptly ends, and it doesn't resolve whether or not Jonah really repents or not. It's kind of like the Old Testament, how it ends. It just stops. Prophets don't speak anymore, and 400 years go by, and then Christ comes. It's really a book that shows us the stark reality of our own self and how much God is chasing us and showing us of his marvelous grace, yet we won't want to see it. And then, before we know it, there's silence, but then the bright light comes in in Christ and it just blows us up. So that's what I hope we will be able to kind of see the larger context of this book this morning. Who's Jonah? Well... Let's talk a bit, because it says here in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah of Amittai. Now, the Bible doesn't really tell us a lot about Jonah. The only really reference we have is in 2 Kings 14. And, um, but what we do find in the Bible is actually very helpful to help us understand this particular sequence of events that Jonah is declaring for us. Let's just, let me show you what I'm talking about. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom um, during the reign of Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. And we are told that Jeroboam II followed after the footsteps of the other kings of Israel, namely in the fact that he, that he did what was evil in the sight of God. Now that's important because this is the label of every king in the second, first and second kings and, and the first and second chronicles. It is always this label of whether it's in Judah or it's Israel. It is God labels them. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord God or he did what was evil in the vast majority of the time, especially for Israel, the, the, the unfortunate declaration is that these kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, simply put, it means that the kings of Israel had kept turning their trust from their God and putting their trust in the might and strength of the socio-political strength of their neighbors. So they were like, wait a minute, we want to be like them. So therefore, maybe if we worship their gods or maybe accommodate their gods into our worship or maybe we chase after their idols or chase after things that are important to them, we will have the same sociopolitical strength and therefore we will not be destroyed by these much larger, much more pervasive military powers around them. Assyria, as we'll talk about today, which is Nineveh. Uh, we'll later on see Babylon when we talk about Daniel back in the, back in the fall. These are the powers that were rising up around them. And so Israel being scared in their boots is starting to turn their trust away from their God and their kings are too. And they're starting to put their trust in other things. Okay? Now, side note on this. Because this, this is, it's not completely, um, it's not completely, I'm not completely unaware of the fact that we look at Israel, we look at Jonah, and we can see that the common challenges of those days are very the same very common challenges that all of God's people seem to have in every generation. That there's this tension between what, they, what, we, what the world thinks of us versus what God thinks of us. 
That's ultimately the tension that we see played out in all the prophets in the Old Testament. That God, is, that God is bringing Israel face to face, bringing Judah face to face with the fact of, do you care what I think of you or do you care what the world thinks of you? This is always the tension in every generation. We see it today. We see it in every generation. And the church of the living God needs to be, always be aware of that reality. And we just see this kind of lived out, the cyclical reality continue to live out in God's people's lives. There's something, and listen, let's be careful here. There is something really good about um, holding on to our witness before the world. I just want to make sure we say that. So to a degree that we, can, we don't compromise the gospel, we should be everything we can, we should be about trying to set a stage so that people can hear the gospel and we would not be unnecessary offense. Like I said last week, the gospel itself is... Is, is, is an offense in of itself. I don't have to work to make the gospel offensive. And neither do you. Right? Just, again, really good note for you to walk out of here with, right? Because I feel like Christians sometimes feel like we have to make the gospel offensive, and that's just not true. So, preserving our witness is very, very important. But that's not the same as the kind of witness that tries to... Um, the kind of preserving our witness that tries to basically flatten the gospel, make the gospel less distinctive, less powerful, less pervasive, you know, in, 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 in intrusive, because the gospel is an intrusive truth. It just is. We have no choice in that. That's not ours, it is. And so then, when you start thinking about this whole context of, of, of Jonah being a prophet under the king Jeroboam, this who did everything in the sight of God was evil, Jonah actually had a pretty cherry gig. Because the Bible tells us that even though Jeroboam II was an evil God, it was evil, and God had every right to bring judgment on Israel, which he would in time, when Assyria is gaining their strength at the northern kingdom there, God sends Jonah to Jeroboam and to Israel, and what does he do? He says, well, actually, I'm going to strengthen you. What? I'm, you're going to strengthen this wicked kingdom, Israel, that continues to run from you? Yeah, I'm actually going to strengthen you. I'm going to expand your borders. I'm actually going to let you prosper under Jeroboam. I think Jeroboam ruled for like 70 years or so, or 60-some years. And uh, I'm, I'm going to let you rule. And you're going to have relative peace, relative comfort, relative whatever. You might want to put into that word there. So you had a pretty... And so do you think about that ministry that God had given Jonah? Like, who doesn't want to hear that? Oh, really? We're, going to, we're actually going to be pretty safe and, and have a meek and mild kind of existence? Great. Now you get Jonah's, the problem that Jonah's facing here. Jonah now, all of a sudden, is faced with a much more less than exuberant call to go bring the gospel, bring the good news, call this city of Nineveh to repentance. But the reason why this is so important for us is because, again, there's this kind of new um, reemergence of or uh, awareness of nationalism in our day. And it's not just American, but it's nationalism all over the world. But you've got to understand something. Like in Jonah's day, in Israel's day, like nationalism was where it was at. It was you were distinctly a people. Israel was trying to dis- make themselves a distinctive nationalistic reality in their world. And so was Assyria, so was Babylon, so was Egypt. All of them were trying to do the same thing. And so when... God 
is using Jonah to say, to tell this Israel, hey, I'm going to strengthen your nationalistic identity. Man, everyone was super happy about that. Right? I mean, this is, this is what I like. I want this, I want this kind of, I want this lifestyle. And then God then does the exact opposite when he calls Jonah to Nineveh. It's just so weird, right? His ministry's in Israel. It's a very positive ministry, well-received ministry. And then all of a sudden God says, oh, wait a minute. I got something else for you, Jonah. I'm going to send you to those people. Right? And who are those people? Well, just hold on. We'll get there in a few minutes. So as, so as we come to the study in Jonah, um, I just want to just make sure that we really grasp what is happening in this entire storyline. That we see God confronts these realities that, are, that Israel is, is steeped in and uses Jonah, this, 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 this prophet, to reveal them to Israel and to reveal them to all God's people in all times and all places, right? And what is he confronting? Well, he's confronting their view of themselves and their need for certain types of comforts or aspirations, He's confronting, as I said earlier, their prejudice and partiality of their enemies and how sometimes we, we kind of almost look down on people who are different than us. He looks and, he, and, he, and he's calling them and he's calling Jonah and by virtue Israel and by virtue the church to participate in spreading his gracious love for all peoples as they confront sin and declare grace. This is what we are. This is what Grace Church has to be. A people committed to participating and spreading God's gracious love for all peoples as we confront sin and declare grace. Amen. You can't have one without the other. And Jonah had not been in that kind of role thus far. There are a couple things I want us to see in this text this morning. I'm sorry I'm taking a little longer to introduce this, but I just hope you guys will see what we're trying to get at here. One is... God's gracious interruptions into Jonah's life, our lives. In verse 2 this morning, I want you to see that God is a God who is committed to interrupting our lives. And if you don't know that about your God, you haven't gotten too close. You just haven't. He is committed to interrupting your nice kind of get it all together, nice kind of milled out life. He wants to interrupt that. Now, here's the thing that I want to make sure we do. I want to kind of give you a little bit of an exercise about how to study the Bible throughout this sermon this morning. Um, because there's a rule number one. If there's a rule number one in studying the Bible, there's, the first question is this. What is God doing? When you read any text in the Bible, that should be the very first question you ask. What is God doing? And in this particular text, God is interrupting. And I would say almost instinctively that's probably what God's doing in most cases when he's engaging humanity in any form. He's interrupting. Jonah, in Jonah, God is interrupting his and Israel's safe, comfortable existence. That there's this stark contrast between what Jonah's ministry was in Israel, as I said earlier, and his ministry that he's now calling him to the outsiders. And not just any old outsiders. We're talking about wicked people. You can love people and you can still own the fact that these are really, really wicked people. You can still do that. It's hard for us, but it is something that God calls us to. You can see how vivid the distinction is. God is interrupting Jonah's life. 
If you've been a Christian for a while, you understand that God sometimes uses the most unexpected, sometimes for us, the most offensive means to show us his grace and his mercy. You know what I mean? This is what he does. And Nineveh presents to Jonah and to Israel the most offensive means they could possibly imagine God interventing their life with grace and mercy. This is what it is. Nineveh, this great city, it says. What does it mean it was a great city? Well, it was a powerful city. Maybe, depending on which historian you listen to, the most powerful city of its day. It was definitely growing in power and might and influence. Not only was it a great city, Nineveh would be the modern equivalent, though, to a terrorist state. Okay? It would be the modern equivalent of maybe Taliban or ISIS. And God's calling them to love them. Come on, man. Let's just really wrestle with the the depth of this. Nineveh was Israel's chief nemesis of the time. No one, no other nation presented such a threat to Israel than Assyria, Nineveh. Nineveh was established by Nimrod. If you know anything about the Bible and know about the flood and post-flood, Nimrod was one of the descendants of Noah, but the ones who did not follow after God, and they went and built in Babylon and eventually spread out, but they didn't spread out doing what God asked them to do. Assyria is this great nation that was established by Nimrod. This is who he is. Now, the reason why that's important for us is because of their rejection of God, way back in the fall, not to do what God asked them to do, they began to do the exact opposite of what God do, and so Nineveh is known for its brutality, its utter terror that it placed on their neighbors, specifically Israel, specifically the most northern edge of Israel, which to, to which Jonah was, had grew up in the most, one of the most northern villages of Israel. So if anyone had an issue with Assyria, it had to be Jonah, right? And so when God calls him to go be a prophet to Nineveh, like you can understand why he, like that rubs him the wrong way. These people have been a threat to my, my lifestyle, to my people's lifestyle for my entire life. And so this people, this brutal people, let me just give you an example of the brutality here. I'm sorry if I'm going to be a little graphic here, um, but I'm just going to go ahead and call it out. They would take the kings of the lands that they would uh, conquer and they would take their bodies back to, their, to Nineveh, hang them on the fence posts. They would cut their limbs off and they would run around the city with, as if those were trophies while the rest of their bodies rotted away. They would take their family members of these kings and they would take, make them march through their city with their father's head on a post as a sign of, death, of, of victory over their, and conquer over their, their neighbors. And that was normal. Do you understand that we live in a world, we might be grossed out, we might be, I don't say gross, that's probably a, a wrong word, we might be offended, we might be, might, it may be obvious to us as Christians how far the world has ventured away from God's standards, but you've got to understand that as we live in the world we live in today, It's normal. What we see for most people is that it's normal. doesn't mean it's right, but it is normal. 
Just like Nineveh had no concept that what they were doing was anything other than just what normal kingdoms do, so is the case for us today. You could, you could nickname them the capital, I saw this in one commentary, the capital of cruelty. This is Nineveh. This is who God's calling Jonah to go to. This is who God's calling Israel to show God's grace to. And so when Jonah is getting this, this, um, this call to uh, go and preach against the city, like you might think, well, okay, that sounds okay. He's getting, he gets to judge them. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that one. I'll, yeah, of course I'll judge these wicked, evil people. But that's not what Jonah, Jonah knows that that's not what God's calling him to. By virtue of Jonah being calling Nineveh out of their sin, what does Jonah actually know God doing? He's inviting them into grace. The most gracious thing God can do is, is call us out of our sin. And Jonah goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you, seriously, Lord? Do you intend to save these people? Are you kidding me? Do you know what these people have been guilty of? Have you heard the stories? And God says, go. Go. And so then, that's their first idea, that God is always interrupting. He's always showing us things about ourselves. He's not interested in your best life now. Common to, you know, whatever they're evangelicals or supposed evangelicals or not even close to being evangelicals say. He's not interested in your best life now. So if you just want, I just want, I want to obliterate that up right now. You've heard me say it many times, but how can I not say that here? He's not interested in you and me finding our bliss and comfort. God call, God's call comes in forms that are difficult like this and offensive to us because that is really the chief way God uses to grow us, Amen. to sanctify us, to show us what grace is really all about. So that was the first point. God interrupts our lives. Second I thought that I have from here is we see in verse 3 that, that God's people are naturally or, or oftentimes resistant to God's interruptions because that's exactly what, what does Jonah do? Verse 3, oh, he got up, flee to Tarshish. He literally went the opposite direction. Where is Tarshish? Well, that would be the equivalent of modern-day Spain. So Nineveh is that way, if you're looking at the map, or that way maybe, and he goes over here to the sea, hops a ship, and he's ready to hit on out and get as far away from this mess as he possibly can. His resistance is telling, is it not? Well, this leads us to the second rule of good biblical study. If we're, the first question we ask is, what is God doing? The second question you need to ask is, what are God's people doing? And oftentimes what we find God's people doing is not very flattering. The second London Confession says this about sin. Sin is an any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, it is us always running from God, doing our own thing our own way. If you want to put a modern spin on it. Running away from God, doing our own thing, our own way. Sin comes in a number of different forms in our lives, but there's at least two that we see here in Jonah. Verse 3, we find Jonah what? Running from God. 
And then later on, we'll see in verse 5 and 6 that he's seeking rest apart from God. Let's just look at for a moment here. So running from God. He's running to Spain, right? Modern-day Spain. He's he's going as quickly as he can down to the shipyard, down to the pier, going to find me a ship, and we'll pay the fare, and I'm going to get away from this mess. Friends, this is what sin is. Just running from what God calls us to. But it's also, as we're running from God, as we're trying to ignore the voice of God, what are we going to do? We're going to look for all kinds of means in order to block out the voice of God. And what does he do? He goes deep into this vessel, it says. And he just kicks it up and finds his rest. This whole storm is raging all around this ship. And he's just, man, he's kicking it back down below. And he's, and he's going to do everything he can to shut out the voice of God. This is sin. For us, we, got, we can look at this, and I hope that we can see at least some honesty about ourselves, right? That God's people, again, the context of this is not ultimately Nineveh. They play a secondary character in this whole thing. The main character is God pursuing, running after Jonah, who is running away from God. God's people struggle to comprehend God's ways, and therefore it reveals the depth of our sin. This is so fundamental to God's work of sanctification in our life. That there's often a deep ignorance of our sin. There's a deep, often a deep ignorance of our prejudice and partiality against people who are different from us, whether it's culturally, ethnically, or whatever it may be. There's also a deep ignorance in us that, we're, we're, that relates to us, by, by, that, that as God brings the good news to us, he's also showing us that good news is for the rest of the world too. Does that make sense? And because sin still runs deep in God's people, as we wait for Christ's ultimate return, we often run from obedience and run from God's call. And we will really do a good job of Christianing it up. Spiritualizing it, won't we? Right? This is what Israel's been guilty of. And this is really what Jonah... Jonah's like, well, maybe I'll find another ministry gig in Spain. Right? Sometimes he just does that. That's what we do. We follow our own desires, we follow our own ambitions, and we do our own thing. I.e., sin is running from God, doing our own thing, our own way. We'd rather God conform to us. If God conformed to us in our supreme wisdom over this world, we truly understand what's going on. God certainly doesn't understand what Nineveh has done to us. So therefore, if, we would just, if God would just get on the plan, if God would just get on the program, that's sin. Anytime we try to make God conform to us, that is sin. Anytime. Whether it's, if you want to look from the more worldly side of things, and we are trying to say God must conform, the Bible must conform to our new sexual ethics, that's sin. But it's also sin for us to get God to conform to us because we are afraid that God's going to interrupt our relative safety and our comfort. It works on both sides of the aisle. It really, really does. The end result is that it's not surprising that often we find the church asleep. Just like Jonah was in the depths of this ship. Find God, find ourselves asleep when God is working powerfully all around us. We are completely ignorant of it and we're doing everything we can to block out God's voice. 
Do you see it? I hope you do. When he really wants us to be joyful participants in bringing his good news to the world, this is what we've got to embrace. So a really good question for us before we move on to our third point is this. Where are we asleep as God's people today? Now you can answer that question hopefully individually, but also maybe we can look at this from a larger perspective of the church's mission and presence in the world. Where are we asleep to our own sin? Where are we asleep to God's call and work? Third heading, if you will, from this text that I want to wrestle with this morning is this. God's unexpected response to sinners and deserters. If the first question is, what is God doing? The second question is, what are we doing? The third question has to be something of, what does God do in response to his resistant people? Or maybe, what does God do that's unexpected? Because that's really what's happening. God, when God's people are in resistance, rebellion against him, it's, it's, it's like we always kind of want to anticipate, well, God's about to bring the boot, Right? Sometimes he does. But when it comes to his people that he's chasing, the people he's pursuing, it's never the boot. Ever. Now, there might be some stern discipline, but it's never the boot. He never squashes his people. And that's what we see here. We see several unexpected moves by God, and it's always grace. That in the midst of the desperate situation we're in, in our sin, as we're running from God, God is always working out His grace in unexpected ways. Here's a definition for grace. We had a definition for sin. Here's a definition for grace. God pursuing me and saving me or you as I am doing my own thing my own way. It's never God pursuing you and pursuing me or seeking you and seeking me or saving you and saving me when we're doing things the right way. Because that just never happens. Right? Has that ever happened? Man, man, you got it together, man. Come on. Let's hang out. Like, that's not God. God's always pursuing you when you and me, when I am in the midst of running from him. This is grace. God's unexpected grace interrupts the interruption. Right? Isn't it amazing? God's grace interrupts the interruption. And so where do we see God interrupting in such a way in this text? Well, I've got four for you, and then we'll wrap it up with some gospel hope, okay? God, grace, the grace of God interrupts in this unexpected pursuit of Jonah as he's running and finding his pseudo-slumber. God interrupts. It says God hurled a great wind on the sea. You know, God didn't just like respond to Jonah's running and going, oh snap, I guess I lost another one. No, he goes after him. He's literally willing to shred the boat to pieces to show Jonah grace. And he'll do the same thing in your life. He's done it in my life at times. He shows up. There's just something unfathomable about God's grace towards his resistant children. That God compassionately but directly pursues his people who are in their flight of sin. Get that. 
God pursues you while you're in your flight of sin. Huge gospel point. Not when you dust yourself off just a little bit. Not when you get enough kind of gumption and maybe I'll go to church the next Sunday. But like when you're in your flight of sin. God's grace shows up when we see this unexpected exposure of Jonah's sin. See, that we don't often see as grace, do we? That God exposes our sin. That's a hard one, right? That as it turns out, God exposes Jonah's disobedience to these sailors, right? We see it on down in here. We read it earlier. They casted lots. Who's in charge of this thing? And they find out it's Jonah. They go ask Jonah a bunch of questions. And Jonah finally has to say, "Um, well, actually, it is my fault. There's grace when God exposes our sin. It's just as much a part of the work of grace as, as, as Jesus atoning for your sin. It's just exposing it. God exposes our sin. God exposing our sin is not God's way of, of embarrassing you or embarrassing me. But to show us greater and more and, and deeper joy than we can be found in our own comfort, safety, and cultural familiarity. That's a hard one, right? Having our sin exposed and the sting of it, the embarrassment of it, the red flushed face from it when you finally get exposed in it. If you've been in that place, you know what I'm talking about. I pray that if you haven't been in that place that you one day experience that. Not because I want you to be embarrassed, but because I don't want you to experience the grace of God. There's also God's grace in, as he... He shows unexpected grace to the sailors through Jonah. Jonah's on the run. Jonah declares who he is to these sailors. I'm a Hebrew. I I worship the one true living God, the God of all creation. And these guys realize, wait a minute, we've been praying to some pretty puny gods up to this point. This God is the real God. This guy on the run from his gods got the real message. And God shows mercy to them as they turn to this God. They cry out to this God. They pray to this God. They throw this dirty, rotten sinner over the edge into the sea. And God shows them unmerited mercy. That's the first time we see it. And we'll see it again in chapter 3 when Josh talks about God's mercy to the Nineveh. And how Nineveh turns on a dime when God exposes their sin. God shows unfathomable grace to clueless sinners. Amen? I'm clueless. Can we just own that? I'm just way more clueless than I'm willing to admit sometimes. I'm just clueless. That's the depth of my sin. There's there's grace that God shows these sailors. There's common grace through these sailors who, who knows if they truly ever were saved in terms of salvation in the spiritual sense, but God, because of them crying out and recognizing his sovereignty, recognizing his power over their current circumstances, they cry out to him, and God shows common grace to them as they recognize this. And friends, this is a wonderful role that we play in the world, as we can go out there and we show people the goodness of the sovereignty of our living God, that God will show them common grace, even if it's for a little while, and preserve their land. 
It, it really reminds me of this truth that I think sometimes we forget as God's people. It is our God is not just our God. Regardless if the rest of the world recognizes our God, our God is their God very as much as he is our God. Amen. And he's sovereignly working out all the affairs of mankind for his sovereign purposes. And it's beautiful, it's amazing, and it's sometimes painful. And it's going to be some people, lots of people, who are going to find that they were on the wrong side of history when this is all said and done. But our God is not just our God. Our God is the whole world's God. Make sense? And then lastly, we find God's grace unexpectedly as he saves Jonah, because that's what we see there in, the, in verse 17, right? He, they hurl him over, and then God provides. It says clearly, right, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him up, and he would live in his belly for three days. Now, look, I know it's here that many people get a little squirrely, right? They're like, ah, oh, this is where this story gets really weird. So, like, is this story got some, got some feet to it? Um, so do I really need to believe this? Or is this just, like, tall tales from some guy who was telling his grandchildren a great story about the prophet Jonah? But that's not at all the case. And this is going to be our bridge to our last point. It may seem odd to us that God would put this little detail in here for us. It may seem odd to us that uh, God would use a large fish, perhaps a well, and it may seem unbelievable to us. But can I remind you something? Something? The gospel's unbelievable too. And that God would use this fish to save is 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 a micro is 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 is, is such a small. It's just so small compared to the, the unbelievable nature that God himself would send his son Jesus from heaven to earth to save undeserving sinners. So to whatever degree you struggle with the whole fish thing, let it be, an in the, let it be a reminder of you how incomprehensible the actual gospel itself actually is. Right? And that leads us to our last point. We need to grasp the gospel according to Jonah. So if I said there was three questions, right? What is God doing? What are God's people doing? How is God working in unexpected ways through his grace? The last question is, how do we see Christ in this? Because we have to see Christ here, right? I hope you see Christ here. Well, we see Christ primarily here in that as God saves Jonah... It's Jesus who substitutes himself for Jonah. Amen. Right? If we go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, and I'll try to go there quickly. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus talks about this um, whole matter about Jonah. And he says, For Jonah... For as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And later on, he'll, he says, he said, you, you look for a sign. Jonah wasn't a good enough sign for you. He should have been a, a sufficient sign for you. But just as Jonah was a sign to you, understand that he is reflecting this true sign, Jesus himself, the Son of Man. So the point we want to wrestle with is, when we leave here before we close up this morning is God saves Jonah by substituting his son Jesus for Jonah. 
See, Jonah couldn't get himself out of the belly of that fish on his own. But Jesus goes to the belly of death for us, conquers death, rises triumphantly, and gives us life that we can't even begin to imagine. So where Jonah was helpless to get out of his situation, it was God's mercy. As we'll see next week, that Jonah prayed to the Lord, and then the belly of the fish, from the belly of the fish, and then God calls this great fish to spit him up on dry land. Like, Jesus goes down to the pit of death, battles and destroys death, finally and fully, and he raises from the grave, and all those who have faith in him will rise with him including Jonah if he puts his faith in Christ. Amen. Including you if you put your faith in Christ. Jesus says to Jonah, he serves as this sign, this type, to point to himself. And my question to you this morning as we get ready to conclude is, have you met this, my Jesus? Have you met my Jesus? The Jesus that I'm just, I am just trying to, even tip of the iceberg trying to describe who he is. This Jesus who is the son of God who is sent from heaven to do three things, right? To live the life that you and I have failed to live. This Jesus who dies a death that you and I deserve to die. Yet this Jesus who conquers death raises us to new life, to a life that we, could nev- that we never deserve? I'm asking you to consider, whatever age you are, have you met my Jesus? And if you have, glory, hallelujah. If you are and have not, I want to make sure you have every opportunity, even before you leave here this morning, to meet this Jesus. I'll make myself available, all our elders are available, and pretty much and most of the people in this room are available to have that conversation. with Children, if you were with your parents and you know, like, they know Christ, have that conversation with them. If you want to have that conversation with me, I will be happy to set up a time with you and your parents to do so. So let's land the plane. If we're going to see Jonah properly, we've got to recognize that this is God pursuing wayward sinners with his grace. And God shows his grace in several magnificent ways. And I just want to summarize really quickly, and then we'll be done. There is grace as God pries our hands off our lives and leads us to embrace his mission. There is grace as God pries my hands off of my own life and leads me to embrace his mission and his purposes. See, someday, friends... Someone else will be sitting in my office doing my job. And I'm okay with that. Because it's not about me. Someday, someone will own my library. And you know how much I love my library. A quarter of my library was given to me by Tom Churchill before he passed away because he wanted to make sure his library was used for training pastors who will train people. One day I'm going to gladly give that library up to someone else who will do the same. Someday, what little money I'm able to save by the end of my life, and I will probably be long gone before Amanda is, let's just be honest, that's going to happen. The money I save is going to be spent on the nicest Cadillac that I could never afford on this planet. 
Because my wife's always promised me, you won't buy me a new car now, but wait till I get all that. I said, well, you don't, you don't know what you're going to get, you know, right? All right? No, God, God, there's this grace in God prying our hands off the wheel, right? I don't have real control over this life. I like to pretend I do, but I don't really have any control over this thing, and neither do you. So stop. Yield to Christ. Find joy in Him. Second thing, see the grace of God in His relentless pursuit of us on our worst day. Because this is, this is wonderful, because Jonah could be like, well, why does God want to have anything to do with me again? And we'll find out God continues to pursue Jonah in some really, really dark places in Jonah's life. But there's just something wonderful of God relentlessly pursues us on our worst day. There was a popular book a few years ago by this popular prosperity preacher called God Chasers. I can't remember what his name is off the top of my head. I don't really care, and I don't really want to commend him to you. <laughs> but anyone who's listened to this sermon realizes just by the title how silly that book is. You and I are not God chasers. We're God runners. Running away from him. It's God who's chasing us. He's pursuing us. And it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Last, maybe God would use this sermon and use this series to help us embrace the reality that God saves us apart from any effort of our own. That's the wonder-working power of Christ. Let's pray. God, help us now as we come to the table this morning. Those of us who are believers and know Christ as our Savior, God, that we would be joyful as we approach this table today and your people would be fed, not just spiritually, but also, God, just being invited to this table and being part of your family, God. Would you just work powerfully in this moment now before we leave this place? Help us now, Lord, as we contemplate the weight of this table and what it means. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.